right. So we're in part three of this series, and um, this series has been all about, honestly, um, specifically if you're a Jesus follower, surrendering your life to Christ is the best way that I could put it. You turning your life to go, God, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. But it's been within the context of talking about the reality that every single one of us, and I think this is every single one of us, at some point along the way we run from God. And so in this series, we've looked at the story of the most infamous runner in history, a guy by the name of Jonah. There's some weird miracles in the story, but I'm telling you, what it says about human nature and about us is absolutely brilliant. Jonah was a man like us um, that ran from God. And we all run from God. We've run from God financially. We've run from God relationally. We've run from God in terms of maybe our, our pursuits, in terms of our priorities. All of us have run from God. And maybe it's not one of those things where theologically you've changed your beliefs. You don't have an intellectual argument against it. You know what you should do. Maybe you grew up with it and you're just like, I'm just not doing that right now. I'm not following that right now. Or maybe it's a thing where you, you've come to a place where your behavior went a different direction and your conscience kind of rose to the surface. It was hard to quiet. And so because your behavior changed, you decided to change your beliefs because that was the easiest way to quiet your conscience. And yet you still struggle. You still deal with that ought and ought not inside of you. Or maybe you're in a place where it's not that you don't pray. You're here in church, you're watching online, you attend. At some level, maybe you pray, you read your Bible, and yet, and this is where all of us come in, there's one area of your life where it's just kind of, I'm resisting God, I'm not doing that, I can't follow that, or at least I can't do that right now. But at some level, all of us have run from God. And so we've looked at the story of the most infamous runner in Scripture. God comes to Jonah, who's a prophet, and basically says, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. Here's my will for your life. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to these people. They're in rebellion against God. If they don't repent, then God's going to have to discipline them. And Jonah hears all the information. He understands what God's asking him to do, and then he does what we do. I don't really have a theological argument against it. Just no, I'm not going to do that. And so Jonah gets on a boat. He goes as far west as he possibly can in the complete opposite direction. And there's a couple of things that we learn in Jonah's running. And here's what we looked at the last couple of weeks. Is the first is that you can run from God, but you're never going to be able to outrun God. You can run as far and long as you want, but you will never, and this is, this is part terrifying, part comforting, God will never abandon you no matter how far you run. And this is the second thing we learned from Jonah, is that God is extravagant with his grace while he is thorough in his discipline. And as we said, not to pay you back. Here's the good news of the scripture. Maybe nobody ever really told this to you. God is not looking to pay you back. God came to seek and save lost people. That's what Luke writes. God came through Jesus to planet earth and actually went to a cross. We believe this happened in history. Died for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And when he walked out of a grave alive, meaning he brought himself back to life, it validated everything he said, as we say every week, that there is forgiveness of sin. And if you ever come personally to the place to go, I can't earn my way to God, I'm trusting what God has done for me through Jesus, you in that moment become a son or daughter of God. Nothing from that point on will ever be able to separate you from the love of God. There is no condemnation. You cannot run outside of his grace. You are forgiven. You are declared righteous in that moment. You become a part of his family. And so God was paid back through Jesus on the cross so that you would not have to be paid back for what you 
you've done. And so every time God disciplines, it's not in kind of opposition to his grace. It's a product of his grace to say, I, because I love you, will put something in your path like Jonah, but hopefully not a whale, to get your attention and to lead you back to where I want you not to pay you back, but to win you back. And so at this point in the story, with everything that happened, Jonah swallowed by a whale. He's vomited on the dry land. God comes with a second offer to go, hey, you want to follow me now? And Jonah's like, okay, yeah, I'm in. And that would have been a kind of a great end to the story, but that's not the end of the story. And in fact, as you finish the narrative, which we're going to do today, here's what you find out, is that the whole point of this book in Jonah in the Old Testament is really not even geared toward runners and rebels. The main point isn't even toward those who've kind of, you know, figuratively given God the finger and like, I'm not going to do that and I'm running the other direction. That's not even the focus of the book. The focus really of the book is toward what I would call as good religious people. That really the aim is toward everybody who would say, like, at some level I'm good, at some level I try to follow God in areas of my life, like, I haven't abandoned everything. And so the whole book is really, it's really geared toward those individuals. They attend church, they read the scriptures, maybe they pray every once in a while. They're not perfect, they try to be faithful to their spouse. And here's what I want you to know if, if you're maybe not in that category, you don't feel like you are, or you don't believe any of what we believe, whether you're online or in the house, um, and you have thought at some point along the way that Christians are judgmental, I want to confirm all of your suspicions today in just a couple minutes. Because the end of this book like, kind of gives you the underside of what this can become. That every Jesus follower, every person who calls themselves a Christian, this, this is where ultimately it can go. And so the whole focus of the book is all of those people who claim to be followers of Christ, they're good at some level, however you define that. But here's where the point comes in, and this is where a lot of us are, that that you can get to a point in your journey and you're following Jesus and you're following God where you surrender to God's moral will. Like you surrender to, man, the best I can and I don't have it in me, so God kind of has to help me and do it through me. But I, I want to I wanna do what's right. I want to make good decisions. I want to raise my kids well. I, I want to I pursue this. And at some level, I've surrendered to that. But there's a bunch of us that have surrendered to God's moral will without ever surrendering to God's purposes in the world. We've surrendered to, I want to I, I be good, I, I want to follow, but, but I've never actually surrendered to God's purposes in culture and in the world. And I just want you to hear me for a second. This is the reason why the local church is so marginalized in culture. This is the reason why it seems at times so relevant. It's not programming. It's not the bands. It's not how cool or hip it is. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It has everything to do with what chapter 3 and 4 of Jonah talks about. This is what leads the church to be relevant, where people on the outside go, you're good, that's amazing. You let me borrow your weed eater. You go to church every single weekend. I think you even pray every once in a while. That's amazing. You maybe gave some money to Compassion International. Are you compassionate toward me? Do you even love me? Do you even care about me? Is there anything in your life besides your hopping from Bible study to Bible study where I would look at this group of people who say that they serve a God of love and grace that actually translates to me? Because you, sur you, you kind of surrendered to, I want to be good in God's moral will, but you've never surrendered potentially to God's purposes in the world. And this is where Jonah picks up in Jonah chapter 3. Verse 1, and here's what it says if you've got a Bible or you can download it with the YouVersion app on your phone. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
And he says in verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I gave you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now here's the thing. This is about 550 miles away. So this is a long trek. Jonah is going across the desert for part of the time. It is hot. I mean, as hot as you can imagine. Um, There is no rest stops along the way. He's exhausted. And what is happening at this point in history is that as he's going to Nineveh, he's got all of these feelings because he's from Israel. Nineveh was kind of considered a really an enemy of Israel. It's completely foreign. The culture is completely different. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down there and I want you to tell these people to repent. I want you to tell them to U-turn. I want you to tell them to submit their lives to me as a nation and I'll relent. But if they don't, within 40 days, I'm going to bring judgment. And so skip to verse 5. It says, the Ninevites, this is crazy. Jonah, guy that's not from that area of town, doesn't understand the culture, doesn't even really like these people, walks into Nineveh, begins to preach, and the Ninevites believed God. And they declared a fast nationwide. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which was like a sign of mourning or or a sign of repentance. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And so Jonah comes into the city and just begins to preach to these people who are, I mean, You talk about like rebellion against God. They're kind of the epitome of rebellion against God. And as soon as Jonah begins to preach, they begin to go, yeah, we're in. We we set aside the pantheon of gods. Yes, we've rebelled against God. Yes, we repent. The king calls for a nationwide fasting and prayer. And the entire nation turns around at one time, which leads to the question, like, how does that happen? Like, Like, how, like, why? And outside of, like, obviously God doing this incredible work, there may have been a couple factors that got the attention of the Ninevites. And one was, at this point in history, there were three different tribes outside the city of Nineveh in Assyria that were threatening to come in and take over the Ninevites. And so it's possible that, okay, maybe if there is a God, that that God's trying to get our attention. A couple other things is within about five years of this time period in history, there had been about five different kind of plague-like things that had happened where, again, the people are kind of leaning in to go, if there is a God, maybe God's doing something. Another thing that happened around this time in history is there was a solar eclipse And at that point, they have no idea what that is. They have no idea about modern science. And so, again, they're thinking, okay, maybe that's from God. And then the the other thing, and I'm just making this up, is Jonah had just been spit out of a whale. He's journeying across the desert. He had to have walked into the city looking like a freak, like some kind of character off The Walking Dead, right? Like he's picking seaweed off of him, and he just starts to preach like he has no fear because that's the other thing. Like Jonah, these guys were known for skinning people alive. Jonah's not afraid. When you are swallowed by a fish and sat in there for three days and then you're, you're catapulted out on dry land, you're like, the Ninevites? Like, I don't care. Like, he is absolutely fearless. So he walks in there with no fear, looking like a freak, begins to preach, and God maybe uses all of it to lead these people to repent. In verse 8, The king of Nineveh issues this decree, let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. 
And when God saw what they, had, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. And right there you're like, awesome, this is a great series. So you should just honor God, realize he's extravagant with his grace, he's thorough with his discipline, he's a God of second chances. I mean, Jonah gets an extreme amount of grace because he went against what God wanted, but then God let him come back, have another opportunity. He goes to Nineveh, he preaches against all odds, all of the people turn to God, there's nationwide revival, everybody repents, I mean, and God puts his grace on display in an extraordinary way, amazing story. But that's not what happens. And in fact, at this point in the narrative, you begin to discover the real reason behind Jonah's running. And this is so interesting to me, and this is why I say all the time that you should really give the scripture another look if you're investigating, because nobody would make this stuff up. Nobody would write in people who claim to be followers of God and make them look the way a lot of these characters look. Nobody would make it up. Because here's what you discover at this point in the narrative, that Jonah all along has not been concerned about what the Ninevites are going to do to him. Jonah's primary concern was what God would do on behalf of the Ninevites. Jonah did not resist and run because he was afraid of what the Ninevites would do or how they would harm him. His whole issue and tension and resistance was around what he believed that God would do on behalf of the Ninevites. And Jonah knew God better than we think he knows God. And Jonah knew how God would respond, and Jonah knew about God's character. And so at this point in the narrative, it takes this strange twist, and I'm telling you, this is where it gets convicting for me, because the mirror comes up for all of us if we claim to be followers of Christ. All the, man, I know a little bit of the scriptures, I'm a pretty good person, I kind of attend church, or maybe you're way extreme, you've got little stick figures bowing down to a cross in the back of your minivan and a huge Bible, and you homeschool, and you know the songs, and you did Veggie Tales growing up, or you're on the other side where it's a little less weird, but you love God, you get into a community group, you try to be faithful, you're disciplined, you want to make good decisions, and I'm telling you, this is the point where it all intersects, and for a lot of us, a massive, uncomfortable mirror comes to the forefront. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He became angry because he knew that God would honor the repentance of the Ninevites. He knew exactly how God would respond, and like a lot of us, Jonah wanted grace and mercy for himself and he wanted justice for everybody else around them. And Jonah became upset. He became angry. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Lord, this is, not what I, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That this is why I was so quick to flee for Tarshish. Basically, i.e., here's what Jonah's saying. Dang it, God. I knew you were going to do this. I knew this is how you were going to respond. I knew this is what you were going to do. I knew that if I walked in there and if I obeyed you and I preached what you wanted me to preach, I knew that if those people relented, if those people turned around, if those people surrendered their lives and their nation made this, this massive U-turn, I knew you would respond to them with grace and forgiveness. I knew it. See, if you ever have the idea that there's kind of this weird Old Testament God before anger management, and then there's New Testament God kind of after anger management. 
I don't have enough time to explain this with some of the things that get misunderstood in the Old Testament. The lead story is grace from Genesis to Revelation. That God is a God of grace. And so Jonah says, I knew. And here's the theme. This is the theme of the entire book. Here's what Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, knew about your heavenly father. I knew that you are gracious and you're a compassionate God. And you are slow to anger. And you are abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Like, listen, I'm stuck right in the middle of the Old Testament. I don't know it yet, but I am. And I'm an Old Testament prophet, but I know that you're a God of compassion. I know that you are a God of grace. I know that you desire to relent from sending calamity and abound in love. And that's kind of the problem. Because they're Ninevites. They skin people alive. They don't deserve this if you ever wonder if you ever wonder if you ever wonder whether there is a sin whether there is a dysfunction or whether there is a habit that pushes you beyond the reach of God's grace if you wonder that in this moment maybe you are a runner and a rebel and there's some things that man you are so ashamed of you haven't told anybody else and you're wondering is God's compassion enough to meet me there will God really give me this extravagant grace that's disproportionate to anything I deserve this is the verse for you if you ever wonder God is gracious and compassionate, he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in love right where you are, a God who relents from sending calamity. And that's exactly why Jonah isn't happy. And so Jonah says, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And you're like, Jonah, are you serious? Are you serious? Because here's where Jonah was. Jonah had surrendered to the law of God. Jonah had never surrendered to the purposes of God. You want to know the quickest way to become judgmental? The quickest way to become judgmental is to surrender your life, throw your stick in the fire, come down an aisle, surrender your life to the law of God or to the moral will of God without ever surrendering to the purposes of God to reach people who aren't as good as you think you are. You want to become judgmental the quickest. You move to a place where it becomes all about you, all about what do I need to do and maintain to kind of keep in good graces with God, which is theologically off. What do I need to do to be good? What do I need to do to be kind of righteous? What do I need to do to kind of be right in my walk with God? And that's your entire focus. At some point along the way, you will find that you have no compassion and you forget how much you need God's grace every single day. It will become all about you. And I have said this to where I'm just kind of blue in the face, but scripture reading and prayer are so vital in a growing intimate relationship with Christ, but they were never meant to be the end in and of itself. Here is the end of your scripture reading and Bible studies and prayer times, which, man, we should want like we want food every single day. But the end goal of those things was to remind you every single day, I need God's grace as much as I needed God's grace at salvation. I need God's mercy today as much as I needed it the moment I bowed my knee to him. I need God to move in my heart to love, to be kind, to parent well, to give grace when people don't deserve it, to forgive my enemies in a way that I cannot do it on my own. And I don't receive grace at the moment of salvation and go my way. I need it every day of my life. And if there is any good in me, even that goodness is a 
product of God's grace to move in my heart to do something that on my own I am not inclined to do. And so I get up every day to remind myself and to breathe in the fact God, I need grace, and you've given me that grace, and now I'm to be an extension of that grace, that compassion, and that abounding love to everybody I come in contact with. You don't need to pretend. The the moment that's all it becomes, it goes off the rails. And I'm just going to tell you, this is the result. Because that's so much of what the modern church is. The church has become irrelevant in culture. Can I just tell you, this drives me nuts. Our issue is not culture. Our issue is not a need to take back America. Our issue isn't even primarily Satan. We have gotten in our own way. And not only moving to a place where we become just good people, surrender to the moral will of God, not only is that not helpful, that becomes extraordinarily destructive because you literally, in your surrendering merely to the moral will of God, become a barrier to the grace and to the mercy and to the love of God. You cannot move to a place where it becomes all about you. The authenticator and the indicator of your love was, uh, for God was your love for other people. And I think the worst thing we could have is a bunch of good Western people who show up and sit in rows and pray prayers, but really with their activity shout to surrounding communities that they can go to hell because they really don't care. And Jonah is learning at this point in the journey that what I've surrendered to and my on point, I attend the temple every single day is not enough. I surrendered to being good. I never surrendered to God's purposes in the world and the end end result is I become all about me a righteous, self-righteous, hypocritical, pharisaical, impossible to be around individual who forgets every day, God, I need your grace. God, I need your rescue. God, I need you to do through me what I cannot do on my own. And anything you're doing does not make me better than anybody else. It makes me more extraordinarily grateful for the fact that you would choose to do something in my heart in such a way that I would follow you to trust you with my life. But even that is you working in me and not me doing it on my own. And my question is just this. Have you ever surrendered to the purposes of God? Have you ever said, man, my my end goal is not just to be a receiver of God's grace and mercy. I'm to be an extension of God's grace and mercy. If we did, the church wouldn't be marginalizing culture. Jesus would be redefined for a lot of people. There would be this thing where there would be individuals in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our schools, and in our HOAs, or maybe the, the barista that we're spending a lot of time with, or those seemingly random conversations that keep popping up. They would be drawn to the grace and the compassion and the love of God in a way that it is almost irresistible. Because I'm telling you, when people really understand and see modeled what Jesus is offering and what Jesus is throughout the scriptures, it is almost impossible to resist that. 
We would be intentional with our lives. You, you would invite people to church on a regular basis because that is one of the things that forces you to invest in culture. It forces you to have conversations. It forces you to see through the eyes of people who need what you have already discovered in Jesus. You would be strategic in every conversation and in every interaction and in what you do in your neighborhood association because you are an extension of the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And come on, isn't that the thing that led a lot of you in the first place to connect with Jesus? It was the compassion and it was the grace of somebody else that attracted you because they hadn't just surrendered to the moral will of God. They had surrendered to the purposes of God in the world and it changed everything for your life. So verse 4, God asked Jonah a question because this is exactly where Jonah is at, where I have been at so many seasons of my life where maybe you are. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry, bro? I added the bro on. Are you, have you any right to be angry? Jonah, do you forget already? That's unbelievable. Jonah doesn't even answer his question. Jonah just went out, sat down at a place east of the city, and there, this is amazing, made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Okay, God, I think I know what you're going to do, but just in case, I'm, like, I'm hoping that you're going to rain down judgment, and I want a front row seat to see it happen, because I hate these people. And then you find in the story that this gourd had grown up, and it had given Jonah shade. I mean, he's out in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. And then a worm comes and it destroys the gourd and Jonah just becomes over the top angry. And here's where the mirror comes up for every single one of us good Christian people. But God said to Jonah, do you, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do. No, I'm angry enough to die, meaning my prime and primary concern is I don't have shade right now and it's hot and I'm in the middle of the desert and I don't really like being here and I just got the seaweed off of me. I don't like these people. We're enemies of these people. I wish I could go back home and it's hot. And the Lord said, you have been concerned, i.e. you have been compassionate about this vine, this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Jonah, the only thing you're concerned about right now is the fact that you're hot and your gourd died and you don't have shade and you don't like these people and you're far away from home and it's uncomfortable and you didn't really want to come in the first place. That's the only thing you're compassionate about. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who, Jonah, they never have experienced what you've experienced. They have no idea that God is a God of compassion. All they know is the pantheon of, of Zeus and Jupiter and all the other craziness. They have no idea that God relents from sending judgment. They have no idea that my primary virtue is a God of grace and love. But Jonah, you know that. In fact, you've experienced that. But they haven't. They are lost, they are hopeless, they have no idea what is offered in a God who loves them and pursues them, but you do. And here they are, and this is not derogatory, but they're like kids. They don't know up and down, they don't know right from left, they don't know right and wrong. They have no idea where they're going with their life. They have no hope for a future beyond what they see in this moment, but Jonah, you do. 
There's more than 120,000 people who can't tell the right hand from their left and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And then the book ends. <laughs> Done. And I thought about just ending the message right there. Because, like, really, what else do you have to say? Hey, Jonah, you're concerned about everything in the world that really, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. There are 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. Basically, Jonah, dude, you are so good. You are so, I mean, most of the time when you're not running away, you are so moral. You are, you are so on point with your behavior. I mean, come on. You're a prophet of God. Everybody in Israel looks to you. You're good. But you're concerned about all the wrong things. Jonah, I'm concerned about this generation of people. What are you concerned about? Gourd. I don't have any shade. I'm hot. I'm far away from home. I don't really want to be here. You already know I don't like these people. I didn't want this assignment. I'm hot. Did I mention I'm hot? I'm in the middle of the desert. My gourd died. I want to go back home. Jonah, what are you concerned about? I'm hot. I'm concerned about this generation of people. What are you concerned about? Bryant. I'm concerned about this generation of people. What are you concerned about? Oh, it didn't rain for a while, and my grass didn't grow, and I didn't have any grass because I just moved into a place, and nobody took care of it, and there was like five inches of leaves, so I got all those leaves out of the way, and there was still no rain. My grass still wouldn't grow, and now it's raining, and my grass still won't grow, and I'm a little bit ticked off by that, and the guy who fixed my fence in the back had no idea what he was doing. That thing's jacked up, and so now I have to spend time and money doing that, and so I'm just kind of annoyed. Brian, I'm concerned about this generation of people. What are you concerned about? And, and that's the question for you, for all of us. I'm concerned about this generation of people. I'm concerned about the lady in your office. What are you concerned about? I'm concerned about the broken and the wayward, and they don't know their right hand from their left, and they sit in your sphere of influence every single week. They sit in my sphere of influence every single week. I'm concerned about your neighbor. I, I, I moved you into that place where I moved. Did you forget what Paul wrote in Hebrews? You are foreigners and you are strangers here. The goal was never to get to when can I retire and when can I hit the golf course and how fat can I make my 401k and can they get into the school and can I make things as secure as possible and some of those things are great but that was never the end goal. You are foreigners and strangers meaning this is not your home. This is not your primary residence. This is not where you're going to stay and what you do here is going to have implications for there. And there are people who've been placed around you and they don't know what you know and they don't know what I know. They've never experienced this. And God's like, listen, I'm concerned about your mother-in-law. You are too, probably for different reasons, but I'm seriously concerned about your mother-in-law. I'm concerned about your friends. I'm concerned about the single mom. I'm concerned about kids who are bombarded in a culture that is maybe more difficult than ever before to believe that they have value and they have worth beyond what they do. And you have an answer to that. I'm concerned about this generation of people. What are you concerned about? What gets you compassionate? What gets you passionate? What are you angry about? 
are any of us angry about the fact that there are multiple cities where the number of people is growing exponentially to the number of individuals and churches who are reaching them? Has that ever moved us in prayer one time? Has that ever directed a lack of one night sleep? Has that ever done anything inside of us to go, I'm angry about that. I'm angry that people could be around me and my family and our churches and around this Jesus movement and they have no idea that God is a God of compassion and they have no idea that God is a God of grace. They have no idea in the midst of their dysfunction that God wants to relent from calamity because he is thorough in his discipline but he is extravagant in his grace. What moves our heart? What, what moves what we do, what moves our concerns, what moves our passions? And so I just want to leave you with this question. What are you, what am I concerned about? What are you concerned about? What are you concerned about? And again, I had the idea that I was just going to end there and I was going to walk off the stage. What are you concerned about? But that really wouldn't be fair because here's what... I've said via video to Wesley Chapel today and, and what I, I want to make clear in all of our services, there are so many of us and so many of you who get this. It's why we have right now a team coming back from Guatemala that they've had their flight shifted several times, slept in an airport, and they're exhausted and they've seen God do an unbelievable week, work this week in the marginalized.